0: So many of you have come here as creative people, as, as artists, as people who are exploring creative domains, either professionally or as a, a part of your life that has meaning and significance. And as creative people, we we have a, a foot in, in two different worlds. One foot is in the world of our... Um, our, our tradition—the tradition of writing, or the tradition of painting, or the visual arts, or n- n- the tradition of a, a music, a particular kind of musical instrument, or a, a particular kind of craft making—we we have a tradition from from which we have learned and benefited a great deal. We've learned techniques. We've learned from perhaps wonderful teachers about this this art this craft and we we can truly be, you know feel a sense of the richness of that but there's also this other part of us this push inside that wants us to go beyond that that wants us to take a creative leap in in not into total you know groundbreaking but wants us to push forward out of the known and into the unknown. And that's the part that I see is really uh, this retreat is giving an opportunity to come forward. Because without any pressure to produce or perform or Uh, sell or, uh, you know, compete in the market, we have an opportunity to really discover that, or go back to the roots of that original urge to create. Um, For me it began, I I remember this this feeling in in the fourth grade, (laughs) when I loved to paint. I was just, I just thought colors were it, you know, and I was so happy painting away but then there was a moment when my teacher looked at one, something I had done, she looked at it in a funny way, and something in me froze. I said, that's it. I can't do this. I'm no good. So it took about 25 years to pick up a paintbrush again. <laughs> and luckily I, I found a teacher who, was able to, who knew how to work with just such a, you know, that kind of repression, that feeling I'm not good enough. And so it's been a a joy in my adult life to rediscover that original impulse that still was living in me, but I had no way to know how to work with it, no way to know how to express it. So um, this urge to to bring ourselves forward in a new way um, requires a kind of permission. Just as we, in meditation, give ourselves permission to explore in new ways. I remember when I first started doing some yoga, some hatha yoga, way back in the late 70s. I was working at that. Some of you have heard this story, but that's what happens we repeat ourselves. I was working. Uh, I, I was getting a degree in psychology, and I was working. Uh, one year, I had an internship, part time at juvenile hall, part time at suicide prevention. It was a really cheerful year, let me tell you. <laughs> it was. It was quite challenging. I was coming in touch with levels of suffering and uh, angst that my my little middle class life hadn't yet shown me before. So it was challenging, and in the middle of that challenge I decided to do, uh, take a yoga class, and I went to a Hatha yoga class, and I had never, here I was studying to be a PhD in psychology, and nobody in my entire life ever had ever suggested to me that there would be any value in noticing that I was breathing. That sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? But it's true that until I was given permission to attend to the breath, to notice what happens in the body and what happens in the mind when there's a, an attention to breathing, when there's a consciousness around breathing, nobody had ever said, notice that you're breathing. And When I did that, I began to see the value of that. But I needed to be given permission, I probably wouldn't have discovered it on my own. So there are are instructions that we give in meditation that are like giving you permission to explore your own body, your own mind, in ways that perhaps you've never heard before. That is the the process of Vipassana meditation, of learning to explore this mind and this body with this moment-to-moment attention, this loving, non-judging attention, noticing that certain thoughts will be felt immediately in the body, or that returning our attention to the breath over and over again helps to calm the body, it helps to calm the mind, it helps to bring us into this relaxed, alert attention. So we are being given permission to use our attention in new ways. And just as we do that in the meditation, we can also begin to do that in our creative uh, projects. What are the tools that we bring to any kind of creative project? We have the tools of our craft, whether they be a musical instrument, or pen and paper, or a laptop computer, or Uh, paint and brushes. or We have these tools and we have our bodies and we have this mind. Because we don't know the mind very well, meditation is a wonderful way to learn about the nature of mind. And this is really the... tremendous gift we've been given from these ancient Eastern traditions that, while the West was busy developing and cultivating the material world, these, these ancient traditions of Buddhism and Hinduism were exploring how to... the inner world of the mind, of consciousness, and learning how to work with the mind through through bringing a kind of attention to it. And so they have a lot to offer us about understanding the nature of mind. This is a, I think, I just appreciate the tradition for that so very much in in my own life feeling the benefit of having these tools of mindfulness, of awareness, of seeing directly the nature of mind. That is just like an amazing gift so we see that the mind has different aspects. There's the mind, the thinking mind. The mind thinks. The mind that thinks. We know that one, don't we? And then the other aspect of mind that's talked about a lot is the aspect of knowing, of awareness. This mind not only thinks, it has this capacity to know directly. Right now you know the sound of my voice, you are hearing the sound of my voice through the functioning of awareness, the aware mind, the light that is always on, the light of consciousness that is telling us, constantly showing us sights, sounds, smells, tastes, thoughts, feelings, moods, emotions, that capacity to be aware. Not to be aware in a conceptual way, but in an immediate and direct moment-to-moment way. So we study the mind by looking at it very directly in meditation. And we look at the mind by looking at our present experience. And we begin to notice the mind has these habits. We say, get here, be present. We like the sound of that, don't we? sounds sort of nice. Let's all be present." And then we notice that we've gone. The mind has wandered away into the past, into the future, into a million fantasies. It just goes. It just does that. All by itself. Just does it. It's true for my mind, for your mind, for all minds. It's not your personal fault that the mind does that. It just does it. And when we look more closely, we see that many of these habits of mine are patterns of liking some things and disliking others. The laws of attraction and aversion. Wanting more of the pleasant. Wanting to get rid of or away from the unpleasant. this patterning of liking and disliking is what drives us and pushes us this way and that in our lives. The Buddha talked about four pairs of opposites which drive our lives. Pleasure-pain, praise-blame, gain-loss, and pride, shame. And what do we do? Well, of course, we try to maximize pleasure, praise, gain, winning, and feeling good about ourselves. It's almost an operational definition of, you know, how we're supposed to be. We try to minimize or get rid of feelings of pain, of losing, of being blamed, of feeling shame. We don't like that. We try to move away from it. Pema Chodron says, becoming immersed in these four pairs of opposites, pleasure-pain, loss-gain, praise-blame, and pride-shame, is what keeps us stuck in the pain of samsara. It keeps us going around and around. This cycle of moving from what we dislike to what we like and then losing it and struggling to regain it. This is the the, 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 the wheel, what is called the wheel of samsaric existence. It's a mechanism. And we bump into this same mechanism when we enter the creative process. I like this. I don't want that. I'm really doing great. I'm failing. I'm a miserable failure. No one will love me. No one will approve of me. I'm no good at this. Do we not go into those kinds of states when we start creating. The fear of failure, the feeling of pride, and then even pride is like, we, then we want to protect something. We want to keep it in its state so that there's a sense of protecting. And All of these movements of liking and disliking are part of the mechanism of, of mind, but they kind of want, they're, they're in the service of freezing this fluid, changing, luminous reality that we are living in. Trying to hold on to what we like and get rid of what we don't like. It's a human thing, it's what we do, and yet when we are creating we may begin to sense its limitations. That this patterning keeps us from a deeper level of uh, knowing the heart, its vulnerability, its fear, its love, its wisdom. That there is a deeper stream of being that we're actually being called to enter that is underneath or more uh, deep than the patterns of liking and not liking, of accepting and rejecting. If you persist in any creative pursuit, you will begin to sense this. Even if you are very successful, and people love your work, and you're doing really well, and you you know, your dream has come true, you've succeeded in the art world, and you're s- still, that original impulse is going to be felt again someday, if you're lucky. And you're going to want to get back to the source and get back to that original feeling of just creating out of some other place that is not just about succeeding or winning or being liked. We may feel it as being called. We may be called beyond our preferences. Pablo Neruda wrote a poem about this he had this experience himself. It's actually what brought him to write poetry. He says in a, in a poem called Poetry, he says, it was at that age poetry arrived in search of me. I don't know. I don't know where it came from. I don't know how or when. But I was summoned, and there I was without a face, and it touched me. He was called to participate in a life larger than his own. And so he spent many years writing wonderful poetry about this larger vision of life that he felt impelled to touch, to know, to become familiar with. Many of us in our lives at times feel called in ways that may seem unexplainable irrational. Just, we can't, we don't know, but we have to do it. We have to go there, we have to we have to try, we have to write a poem, we have to paint a painting. As I've said, you know, I paint and I paint mostly just for, because I love painting and I don't show my work, but even there, you know, my likes and dislikes surface all the time, and um, I remember some years ago, I was I was happily painting away, and it suddenly occurred to me to paint um, Christ on the cross. Now I can't tell you how disturbing this was to me, mm-hmm. because in my conscious mind I had rejected Christ years ago. I had just thought this was not my trip, you know. I was going to be a Buddhist. I still feel mostly a Buddhist. But there was this urge to paint Christ on a cross. Are you you got to be kidding? You know, it was just like ah. But it wouldn't go away. It wouldn't go away. So I painted it. And it was it was amazing because there was a whole piece of learning and of, of opening there that I could not have imagined, but there it was. Now I look at Christ in the cross and I have a different feeling than I had before. Another um, example of this would, is from a screenwriter I read about who um, was asked to do a screenplay about Napoleon and he's, a, he's the screenwriter's a Frenchman, and he, and he said um, he had a big problem when he was asked. He said, because, why? I could not stand Napoleon. This megalomaniac, hungry for power, this little dictator, this murderer of a million French people. Yet, he says, In writing about him, I literally fell in love with Napoleon. I discovered a character light years away from everything I had imagined, a genius about whose impressiveness and humanity I had had no knowledge. This all came from writing the story of Napoleon's life. So when we are called... Maybe it's interesting to pay attention. Maybe it's worth exploring. Maybe it's worth opening ourselves to. What is calling you? Or maybe the question before that is, how do we know we are being called? How do we know we are being called? Maybe it's just a color, or a sound, or a word. Or maybe it's a feeling in your gut. Maybe it's something very unformed. But still we feel impelled to follow it. Sometimes, um, sometimes I just am very attracted to one color. red or purple or black or yellow, and I just know that whatever I do, I just need to use a lot of it. And it's been very interesting in my life to allow that, and to see the satisfaction of that. And maybe that's enough. That for some reason that's inexplicable and unexplainable, we may just be very attracted to one thing and it brings a kind of joy to give it to ourselves. A color, a sound. If you're a musician, it just may be you are completely in love with this particular sound and you just you know, you just need to go with it. Or if you're a writer, maybe it's a word or or two words that appear together and they just like are like amazing. It just opens doors in your being to Allow those words. Can we allow these movements, even when we don't understand them? Can we give ourselves permission to notice when we're being called, to notice when something new is on the horizon, something that we don't know about, something mysterious, some And explore that. This is where meditation is so helpful because um, we could say that a cre—you know—we get into these blocks, creative blocks. What is a creative block, actually? What is it? I like to think of it as something as simple as just not knowing how to go forward. We just don't know what to do next. In that space of not knowing what does not help is when we start judging ourselves, or the critic gets hold and starts giving a whole song and dance, or we get afraid and we stop. But if we can just think of it as an invitation to explore something unknown. You know, in, uh, our, in our culture, not knowing is seen as somehow uh, a failure, like it's a, it's a place of shame. Like you're supposed to know. You're supposed to know what to do all the time. You're supposed to know how to make it work. You're supposed to know how to this and that and the other. But in Buddhist practice, not knowing is actually considered a very valuable state of mind. It's sometimes called beginner's mind. The mind that doesn't know and so it is open. It is curious. It is willing to entertain possibilities. So we have a, a refuge there, this beginner's mind, this mind of not knowing. It does take getting used to. It takes getting used to staying open without freaking out or judging ourselves or getting afraid. But Allowing not knowing itself to be illuminated by our awareness. Not knowing means that we can always begin again. That every new moment brings with it a potential that we don't even know about. It means letting go of the past. Joseph Campbell says, we must be willing to get rid of the life we've planned so as to have the life which is waiting for us. And that is part of not knowing, that willingness to open to the new. So in meditation we learn some useful ways of letting go. Letting go of our opinions, our agendas, our past ideas, our plans. And one of the most simple and direct ways of letting go is the simple act of coming back to the breath. Just coming back to the breath, it may seem so insignificant, so not a big deal, and in some ways it's not a big deal, but still it allows the mind even a little bit of a chance to let go, a little bit of a chance to kind of rest and regroup and begin again. And when we do this over and over, we find out that we don't need to be held hostage by all of our mental struggle. We can return our attention to something quite neutral and benign, and the breath is that. The the breath does not have an opinion. The breath does not have an agenda, other than to just keep breathing. The breath doesn't have a judgment about you. It doesn't have to prove itself or make a statement. It is a neutral object, and therefore it is a wonderful one to take refuge in. It teaches the mind how to let go, to wipe the slate clean. And out of this emptying process, what is new, spontaneous, unpremeditated, has a chance to show itself. making space for what is new. So we discover that actually what we call a creative block is workable. That we have some tools that we can use to learn to work with it and, and make it into an ally. You know the story of Sisyphus. Here's a a new version of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the god to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, he sings to it. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurdle to the bottom, and go home. We have an opportunity in letting go, to put down the burdens to see what life would be like without the repetitive burdens that we carry. So the simple practice of returning our attention over and over again back into the body, to the breath, to the stepping, to the hearing, to the sensing, is subtle but quite powerful in allowing a process of letting go to, to get activated. The, one of the, one of the Zen patriarchs I can never get them all straightened out, there's so many of them, but one's Zen patriarch said, step aside from all thinking and there is nowhere you can't go. That says a lot about the the power of this practice. Step aside from all thinking and there is nowhere you can't go. Then we are touching life directly, immersed in just what is. Sometimes we may be finding in our lives a a time of uh, big transition, or a time of uncertainty, where letting go seems almost to be forced. And that may also require another kind of presence, a kind of presence that is willing to be very focused, very um, in touch with the world. Barbara Kingsolver from High Tide in Tucson wrote, Every one of us is called upon, probably many times, to start a new life. A frightening diagnosis, a marriage, a move, loss of a job, or a limb, or a loved one, a graduation, bringing a new baby home. It's impossible to think at first how all this will be possible. In my own worst seasons, I've come back from the colorless world of despair by forcing myself to look hard for a long time at a single glorious thing. A flame of red geranium outside my bedroom window. Or my daughter in a yellow dress. Or the perfect outline of a full dark sphere behind the crescent moon. Until I learn to be in love with my life again. Like a stroke victim retraining new parts of the brain to grasp lost skills, I have taught myself joy over and over again. That's another kind of healing that I feel the creative process can bring when we are giving ourselves the connection with the sensory world and relearning in a new way what it means to be here on earth in connection with this amazing, mysterious, difficult, challenging, hilarious, wonderful human life. So on this retreat, we will each of us be exploring in our own ways. This is um, unique in, a unique retreat in that regard. Each of you will be, beginning tomorrow, exploring your own creative process, finding your own way with your own materials. And I hope these words you can use to take into that process with you so that you are willing to listen deeply, notice where you're being called, and give yourself full permission in this very safe and sacred place to explore, perhaps in new ways, ways that you hadn't anticipated maybe before you came here. There is a saying, every journey has a secret destination of which the traveler is unaware. And my wish for you on this retreat is that you discover your own secret destinations. We all have them and we don't know, I don't know what they are for you, but I'm sure if you give yourself very fully to this process, you will find them. Throughout all of this, isn't what is essential is this attitude of openness of deep listening, of curiosity, openness to what is being asked of you, what is calling you, what is wonderful about this journey, and certainly... How long have you been meditating, Wes? Thirty years.
1: Thirty
0: years. How long have you been meditating, Tisha?
1: Twenty minutes or so. <laughs> Come on.
2: <laughs> oh, probably since sixty-eight, uh, something like that.
0: Sixty-eight, sixty-nine. I don't know. Now you could say maybe we're just really slow learners here. We're really slow learners. Thirty some years of of doing this. Are you kidding? Or you could say that that the reason, or one of the reasons, is that this journey is one of ever, of always discovering afresh something new. That there's no end to the process of discovery. And there's no end to the process of um, opening and being curious and seeing in new ways. It's, it's a pretty endless venture. Wouldn't you say? <laughs> I used to think, you know, I'd do a few years of meditation and then, you know, I'd be on my way. And that would be it. <laughs> I'd sort of graduate. And what I've found out is there is really no graduation. We never graduate. We just keep deepening and opening and feeling more and more this amazing uh, process of learning.
1: It can be set back.
0: We do get sent back, oh, oh, quite often, and that's that's one of the humbling things. But then when you do learn it, finally, you just feel so good, you know, it's pretty great. So, so I hope that you take that to mean you're in good company. <laughs> do you have any questions? Any thoughts? Anything about what I've said, or about the process? Wes, do you have a poem?
1: Yes, I do. This poem is uh, by the same woman who wrote the poem that I read last night about Monet, Liesel Mueller a book of poems called Alive Together. Can you hear me? Yes. When I am asked how I began writing poems, I talk about the indifference of nature. It was soon after my mother died, a brilliant June day, everything blossoming. I sat on a gray stone bench in a lovingly planted garden But the daylilies were as deaf as the ears of drunken sleepers, and the roses curved inward. Nothing was black or broken, and not a leaf fell, and the sun blazed endless commercials for summer holidays. I sat on a gray stone bench, ringed with the ingenue faces of pink and white impatience, and placed my grief in the mouth of language, the only thing that would grieve with me. I I wanted to read that poem because it's such a beautiful poem but also because grief and art joy and art dance really beautifully together Um, I don't know if you've read surveys but Poets and artists are among the most depressed people on the planet, <laughs> and I, I think uh, I mention that because in meditation we can we touch grief and we touch our own vulnerability and sorrow. We learn about the Buddha's first noble truth, and that there's a there's a beauty in that, and out of that touching of that kind of emotion comes a different sense of awe and beauty and wonder. It, it's a fertile ground where your tears are, where your wound are, where your wound is. Uh, my, my dear friend and, and the mythologist Michael Mead is always saying. If you want to find your gate, go to where your wound is. That is what will open to you your real path. Your, your beauty lies there. So just as a suggestion, just as a, a thing you might pay some attention to,
0: It may be one of the things that's calling you. Or it may not. Marianna? I
2: have a question. I may have misunderstood um uh the part where you One day they'll get back to this place where they feel that adventure and joy and just that desire to create. And um, I knew I people like that who never... They, they, every time they started something only only I ever looked at, those wonderful glassworks, they just did the most unusual things in glass. I always go, I have no idea what that's going to look like, but it was all gorgeous. And I have never heard him say he was bored, or he always used to say, I'm never bored. And so at least I I, mean, I think there
0: are people who are very successful and don't go to that truth Sure, I, I, I'm sure that's true. Mm-hmm. And I I wasn't trying to generalize. I. Really, the point I was making was more about getting caught in liking and disliking. Uh That there is a a place deeper than that from which to create.
2: It's interesting because I would have that response to some of the things you want to do. If you collect art pieces of beautiful carbon and go, what? Can can they be
0: fabulous? Yeah. Um I don't know if many of you have seen the the little video of Andy Goldsworthy's work at Rivers and Tides. Oh, yeah. Have many of you seen that? And I love the the part in there about when he's he's in making he's in having breakfast in his kitchen at home with his wife and and he's getting ready for his work day and his wife said, um, so what are you going to do today?" <laughs> You can't believe his wife is asking him this question. It's like, he he has this incredulous look on his face and he says to her, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm an artist. (laughs) Yeah, I think many very fine artists stay very in touch with that place. And they are inspiring to us. Anyone else? Okay then, we'll end for this evening. Um, Thank you for your attention.
2: This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 25, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.